persuade others. I wonder who have you tried to persuade to come to Christ here recently? Have you? You should. It's what Paul says. He said, God knows that we are sincere, <clears throat> and I hope you know this too. Are we trying to pat ourselves on the back again? No, he says. We are giving you a reason to be proud of us so that you can answer those who brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than having a sincere heart before God. He says, it, if it seems that we are crazy, it is to bring glory to God. And if we are in our right mind, then it is for your benefit. Whatever we do, it is because the love of Christ controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for everyone, we also believe that we have all died to the old life that we used to live. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live to please themselves, but instead they will live to please Christ who died and was raised for them. He said, so we have stopped evaluating others by what the world thinks about them. He says, once I mistakenly thought of Christ that way, as though he were merely a human being. How differently I think about him now. He says what this means is that those who become Christians, become new persons, new people, they're not the same anymore. For the old life is gone, and a new life has begun. He writes, all this newness of life is from God who brought us back to himself through what Christ did. And God has given us the task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. This is the wonderful message that he's given us to tell others. We are Christ's ambassadors. And God is using us to speak to you. And we urge you, he says, as though Christ himself were pleading with you, be reconciled to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. To God be the glory. Forever and ever, amen. I wonder, and I know I'm speaking to a large group of people here who have worked most of their life. I wonder, how long do you want your life work to last after you die? A few months? Maybe a couple of generations beyond you? Or would you like for the work that you're doing to last on into eternity? You say, Brother Randy, why, why is that important? Well, let me show you. Psalms 49, verse 17. The psalmist writes, For when you die, you carry nothing with you. Your wealth will not follow you into the grave. That's a pretty interesting statement, one that we probably don't, stop and think about very long but you know throughout history there have been a lot of people people of wealth and means who have taken the sum total of what they've 
lived for and, and accumulated, and they buried that with themselves in their graves, thinking that they're going to be able to take that into the afterlife. Saw several programs about it this week. Interesting. The kings of Egypt always did this. And the most famous of those was King Tut. It was a great program the other day about King Tut on TV. I, I didn't realize all the stuff that was in his tomb. It didn't have a big tomb either. It was a small tomb. But they say there were 5,000 objects buried in that tomb with him. It took Carter 10 years to get all that stuff out of the grave and into a museum. And what they're finding today is they look at that, all of that stuff, and as they examine it, they're finding out that at least 25%, maybe as much as 50% of what he buried with him, had buried with him right there in that tomb, had belonged to other pharaohs that lived before him. In other words, he stole it from their grave and put it in his grave. That's right. Now, even the emperor of China, Qin Shi Hong, was a man who put a lot of stuff in the grave with him and around him. He's known for having buried a massive army of uh, terracotta clay soldiers and horses, and they're buried all around him, literally thousands of them. He's got a huge mound there that is his temple or his burial mound, and, and, and they're, they're not digging that. We don't know what's in there, but I can assure you there's a lot of stuff buried with that emperor. I, I read a, about a lady years ago that was very rich, and she wanted to be buried in her Jaguar. And I thought, what a waste of a good car. <laughs> yeah, she was. She was buried in her car. I remember my brother burying a pine cone with his dog. Nikki was a border collie, and Nikki always had a pine cone in her mouth. And so when she died, he put a pine cone in her grave with her. People are doing that kind of stuff all the time. But you know, archaeology proves that it doesn't work. Graves always produce the same thing that you put in them. Human remains and, and earthly wealth. Every single item that you put in your grave or casket with you is going to stay there unless somebody steals it and puts it in theirs or takes it home. Job said, we bring nothing at birth and we take nothing with us at death. The Lord alone gives and takes. Praise the name of the Lord. Years ago when we were at Bible camp with some of our youth, Dawson McAllister did a study that week entitled, Pack Your Bags, Jesus is Coming. Never forget it. Showed a picture on the front of the book of, of these feet drifting up into the air. And it was rather interesting. And I thought, well, you know, it's, it was a study about the end of times. It was all about preparing yourself for the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. And, and the title was obviously a play on words. <clears throat> there's, there's no need to pack your bags because you can't take anything with you into heaven. Listen, it wasn't a study about getting your stuff up into the cosmos. It was a study about getting your heart right and ready to meet the Lord. That's far more important. And I'll just say to you, if you aren't ready to meet Jesus, you need to get ready. If you aren't ready, you're gambling that you're going to have an opportunity to get ready. 
And that's a gamble that you might lose. It's a gamble that you can't afford to lose. It's a foolish gamble. Have you asked yourself the question here recently, am I ready to die? If you hadn't, you should. Because you never know when the day you live is, is the last one that you're going to live. Even if you're planning to have all your earthly possessions buried with you in the grave so that you can take them into heaven, I would just say don't bother. Number one, you can't get any of it in there with you. And number two, you're not going to need it when you get there. You see, heaven comes fully furnished. And besides that, Jesus said, I'm going to be there. And he says, I, I'm going to meet your every need. If by choice, and notice I didn't say chance. If by choice you miss heaven along with all the stuff that you've accumulated and if you can somehow get it into hell with you, it's going to be consumed instantly with an unquenchable fire because nothing survives that you possess here for very long there. You don't get it in there, but if you could, the only thing that does survive is going to be your soul. Your soul will never be consumed. It will never escape the flames of hell. And you will never be burned up in hell. It's going to be the eternal home of a lot of people. And you can trust me in this. There, there's no luxuries. Hell's not a five-star hotel. No luxuries in hell. Absolutely none. There's no light bulbs. There's no running water. There's nothing. No air condition. Not even a box fan. No ice cream. <laughs> no lemonade. Nothing but heat, but a lot of that, plenty of heat. See, it, hell's going to be a place of punishment, not a place of rewards. Now, I guess you can make plans, if you want to, to take your stuff to the grave. But most of the time, most of the time, somebody inherits your savings, and they'll accumulate your stuff. They'll get it. And when that happens, your stuff won't make it into the grave with you. Most of the time, your children get everything that you've lived to amass. Most of the time. At least most of it. They, they typically go through it pretty fast as well. It's, you know, they get it and, and it's gone before you know it. I, I'm pretty sure that's why Bill Gates said years ago that he would not give any of his wealth to his children. The only thing he was going to give them was an education. I think that's his plan. He planned to do that because he doesn't want to ruin his kids, number one. And number two, he doesn't want that wealth that he's accumulated to be squandered or, or to be wasted. Thinking back the other day, I, I was thinking over the years, I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen this scenario play itself out. I've seen a lot of farmers who work their entire lifetime working and, and building and growing a farm only to die and leave it to a son who in turn lost everything that he inherited within a year or two of his father's death. I've seen him lose everything, just waste it all and wind up flat broke, lose the money, the, the land, the equipment, everything and not have five cents in their pocket. Easy come, easy go. Solomon writes, some people don't have friends or family. There are people living 
right now who don't have anybody. But they're never satisfied with what they own and they never stop working to get more. They should ask themselves, he says, why am I always working to have more? Who will get what I leave behind? What a senseless and miserable life. So often we spend our entire lifetime dreaming and planning and accumulating stuff that we hardly ever use and then when we die somebody inherits our stuff or else somebody buys it for pennies on the dollar. Talking to somebody about that just a moment ago. I, I read an article not long ago in the new kayak magazine, kayak fishing magazine that I got and, and in that article there was a story about a, a man who saw an online post that simply said Selling all my fishing gear cheap. I thought, man, I wish I had that guy's number. You know, um, it, 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 was, uh, it was all for sale because the owner of all that stuff had recently suffer, suffered a workplace injury that left him unable to paddle his kayak and unable to cast his reel. Uh, and, and in that post, the the only drawback to this guy selling his stuff was that whoever bought it had to buy it all. Had to get everything. And that was quite a lot. It was a kayak, three fly rods, five reels, two life vests, a float tube, waders, and boots, ten boxes loaded with flies, an estimate of about a thousand flies, two fly tying vice, five storage cabinets of, full of hooks and fur and feathers, Tippets and leaders. Now, if, if you're a, a common fly fisherman, you just know the word leader. If you're one of those highfalutin fly fishermen, you, you understand tippets. I don't own any tippets. I own leaders and leader material. But this guy had tippets and leaders. He had a few spinning spools. He had books. He had a cardboard box full of all kind of floatants, you know, things you put on your line. He had lines that were unlabeled. He had all kind of tools. The entirety of a dedicated angler's 20-year fly fishing addiction. A lot of stuff. Jeff Jackson, the man that eventually bought all of that stuff, said, Sure, I felt guilty about one angler's tragedy becoming my boom. However, I mitigated my feelings by handing over the cash to the man, and I walked out with his treasure, no questions asked. <laughs> he took it and ran. I, I, I think I understand. He said, when I got home, I spent several days just sorting through all the stuff that I had bought. He called it his haul. And he said, what I discovered was that there were two piles of stuff when I began to sort it, two piles of equipment. There was the very worn stuff, and there was the hardly ever used gear. He said one pile was stuff that this man fished with all the time. It was all heavily used and very well worn. It was obvious that the man fished with this pile of gear to catch the bulk of his fish. And what he said was even more interesting is that of the two piles, this pile of well-worn stuff was the smallest pile. You want to know why? I figured it out real quick. It's because if you fish and you're serious, you learn what fish bite, and then that's what you fish with. 
And that's what this man had done. I, I, I honestly believe I could say this, that in the last 18, 20 years, fishing both in salt water and fresh water, 90% of the fish I've caught, I've caught on two baits, two kinds of bait. And you're going, what were they? I'm not telling you. <laughs> it's secret. Yeah. I might. See me later. I'm pretty sure that that's true for most fishermen. You have your go-to baits. You know what to use. And yet fishermen are always looking for that super bait that better bait that will catch more fish and bigger fish. But most fishermen, if they're honest, own a lot of baits that they've never caught a fish on and that maybe never even fished with. It's been said that lures catch fishermen before they ever catch fish. Some lures catch fishermen that never catch fish. So there was that pile of well-worn stuff and then there was this larger pile that he concluded was this man's dream pile of gear. New stuff, hardly used stuff, high-end, high-dollar rods and reels and a, and a lot of beautifully tied flies that were made to catch just one particular kind of fish. It was all gear that the man had been collecting for years for that dream fishing trip of a lifetime. A trip that sadly never happened and never would after the man's injury. Now, every serious angler that I know of has a pile of gear they've been collecting for that one trip of a lifetime. I've got my gear that's for that trip. I, I understand that. I, I've been collecting. You know, all serious anglers have that. And, and you dream, you, you think about it from time to time, you dream of being able to go to that place, catch that particular kind of fish with all that stuff that you've accumulated. Jeff Jackson writes in that article, he says, fishermen or fishing is about aspiration, optimism, and hope. He said, each cast is an exercise in ambition. He said, my head is constantly in the clouds, tying flies, preparing my gear, pa paddling endless miles, making hundreds and hundreds of casts, dreaming of the next bite. And he said, when I look at my gear closet, I have a closet. My wife wishes she could reclaim that closet, but she's not getting it. <laughs> but he said, when I, when I look at my closet, I see those hopes and dreams piled in the corner, stacked on the shelves, hanging from the rafters. And he said, even if those dreams never come true, I am glad I have them. It dawned on me this week, who's going to get my stuff? Probably going to get sold for pennies on a dollar. Somebody's going to get it. Well, several years ago, John Maxwell built a devotional study around Psalms 49 verse 17, and it was a devotion on leadership and it was entitled, Leaving More Than an Inheritance. Interesting title. The whole premise behind the devotion is that it's far better to leave a legacy than it is to leave an inheritance because 
a legacy will far outlive an inheritance. And he writes, God encourages us to fix our eyes on things that endure in light of eternity. He says both leaders and you can't become consumed with the temporary. We just can't do that. He said only a vision that outlives them or outlives you, a vision connected to eternity, will fulfill a godly leader or a godly believer. In other words, you must build a legacy. You must. It is imperative. He says a huge difference exists between a legacy and an inheritance. Anyone can leave an inheritance. An inheritance is something that you leave to your family or your loved ones. And the only problem with is that it's, it's a bunch of stuff that eventually fades. A legacy, on the other hand, is something that you leave in your family and in your loved ones, and it lasts. And then he has a comparison. He says, an inheritance is something that you give to others, whereas a legacy is something that you place in others. An inheritance <clears throat> temporarily brings you happiness, whereas a legacy will permanently transform you. An inheritance will eventually fade. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's going to fade as it's spent, whereas a legacy lives on long after you die. He said, with an inheritance, your, your activity may pay off or it may not, but with a legacy, your activity becomes an achievement. An achievement, something that is accumulated that is of value. Achievement is good. It really is. Especially if it's a godly achievement, especially if it's uh, built around the uh, kingdom-mindedness. I, I was reading scripture the other day. My devotions take me all over the Bible, and, and I was reading one passage of scripture that had been recommended in this devotion. And, and as I ran across it, it was a devotion that uh, for some reason really got my attention the other day. I know I've read it many, many times because I've been in that passage of Scripture before. But for this particular time, it was like the Scripture just exploded off the page and hit me right between the eyes. You know, God does that every now and then, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. And, and God meant for that Scripture to be different for me on that particular day. Here's the Scripture, Proverbs 27, beginning in verse 23. He writes, know the state of your flocks and put your heart into caring for your herds. I thought, well, I don't have any flocks. Well, I do. <laughs> he says, know your herd. This is terminology that speaks about shepherding, being a shepherd. As I read this, I thought in the context, it all kind of comes together as you massage it in your mind. As I began to think about this, I thought, you know, shepherds, in the day that this was written, being a shepherd was not something that people wanted to do. It was a low-end job. It was a low-paying job. It was a job that was on the bottom of the employee totem pole. Nobody wanted to be a shepherd. But the writer is saying you need to think about your sheep. You need to think about your goats. Look at why in verse 24. He says, for 
Riches don't last forever. Hmm. Really? And the crown might not be passed on to the next generation. He's wanting you to stop and think. And he says this because what he's saying is, at the end of the day, after the hay is harvested and the new crop appears and the mountain grasses are gathered in, he says, your sheep will provide wool for clothing. You just might need some clothing in the future. And your goats will be sold for a piece, for, for the price of a field. You know, you could take that money from the goats you sell and go buy a field that's already been planted and ready to harvest. All you got to do is go out and harvest it. You might need that to eat. And he says, You're, you will have enough goat's milk. <clears throat> you like goat's milk? I don't even like goat butter or goat cheese. But if you have a taste for it, it's pretty good, I guess. If you're hungry, you'll eat anything. He said, and you'll have enough goat's milk for you and your family and your servants. Now, now think about this. Keep in mind that the man who wrote these words was a king who probably never saw his goats or his sheep. His name was Solomon. And he ruled all of Israel. And his father David was king before him in that throne. David was on the throne for 40 years. And then Solomon got the throne and he was on it for 40 years. But you see that throne that he inherited almost didn't get transferred to him. He had a brother, a half-brother named Absalom that almost took the throne from his father David. So in all of that experience, Solomon came to understand that there's no guarantee that you can pass things on to your children. No guarantee. And there's no guarantee that the standard of life that you enjoy today will be yours tomorrow. You could be a king today and a common man tomorrow. You could be rich one day and flat broke the next. Do you see the picture there? So what do you do with that thought? Well, I think if I understand the context of what Solomon's trying to get across to us here, he's saying you need to take care of what's really important. You need to prepare for your future and you need to start working on leaving a legacy. Three very important thoughts. Well, how do you do that? You guys ask great questions. How do you do that? Well, <clears throat> the answer to that question is to realize and accept the true purpose for which God has saved you. Let me, let me say that again. The, the, the answer to that question is to realize and accept the true purpose for which God has saved your sorry old sick soul. You got to think about that. Why did God do that? Well, God saved you because he wants to love you and bless you. Amen? That's why God saved us. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world. He so loved you and me so much that he gave his one and only son 
so that whoever believes in him may not be lost but have eternal life. <clears throat> I said last week, nobody has or will ever love you like God does. Nobody loves you like Jesus. A lot of people will tell you, I love you, but nobody has demonstrated their love like the Lord. And besides that, there's no greater blessing than being forgiven of all of our sin. Just stop and think about that. None of us are worthy of a, a second in the presence of God. None of us. Why? Because we're sinners. But in Christ, we've been forgiven. We've been made right with God. And on top of that, we've been given the unique gift, blessing, awesome, wonderful prize of eternal life. God loves you and he blesses you. and he, that's, that's why he saved you. But God has also saved you because he wants you to share that blessing with other people through your life and through your ministry to them. I, I was reading a prayer the other day by Jesus and, and it dawned on me. I want you to listen to how critical. Yeah, that, that'll help me. I don't know what's going on this morning. Maybe it's not enough fishing. You reckon? Ah, thank you. I think I can make it now. Look, look, look at this verse because it's John 17, verse 20. And I want to tell you right up front that it is a prayer by the Lord that focuses on the spiritual legacy of the church. He's not only thinking of the moment when he's praying the prayer, but he's thinking about us today. And that's a critical piece. Jesus said, I'm not praying just for these followers. He, he's saying, Father, you see this group of disciples that I have here in the room with me? I, I'm praying for them, but not just for them. He goes on to say, I am also praying for everyone else who will ever have faith. He say, I'm praying for the, these guys today, but I'm praying for you guys today, the ones that are here. But then he puts a footnote on the end of that verse that is absolutely critical. He said, I am also praying for everyone else who will have faith because of what my followers will say about me. He's saying, God, I'm praying for these guys that are in this room today because of what they're going to say about me, which will lead to others putting faith in me in the future. Wow. That leads to a really big question. What is the only thing that you can take with you into heaven? You ever thought about that? It's not the stuff that you have stuffed in that closet. Or parked in the garage or out back under a canopy in your yard. Not any of that. The only treasures that will make it into heaven with you are the precious souls that you work hard to persuade and lead to put their trust in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. Everything else gets left behind. Paul says it this way. 
He said, we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord. And because of that, we work so hard to persuade others. God brought us back to himself through what Christ did. And God has given us the task of reconciling people to himself. If you look at all of the verses that I read at the beginning of this sermon, there, there are two golden nuggets, two golden verses of Scripture found in that passage, and they are verse 17 and verse 18. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. You know, if you are in Christ, if, if you either are or you're not, you're either in or you're out. There's no straddling the fence when it comes to a relationship with God. You're either saved or you're not saved. You can't be half saved. You can't be almost saved. Being close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. That's not original with me. Y'all have heard that before. Again, he says, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, it simply means that your heart has been converted. Converted. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You are a new creation in the sense that you have been converted from what you once were to what you now are. I, I went back and looked up the word converted in the Hebrew. It's the word shub. Shub. Interesting. It means to withdraw, to retreat, to draw back, to return back, to literally fetch home again or to change sides. In the truest sense, spiritually, when you are converted to faith in Christ, you're making a decision to abandon Satan and to return home to the God who is your creator. Now I want you to note the role that an already converted person can play in the next person coming to faith in Christ. This is very important, folks. I want you to note the role that you can play. Look at what David said in Psalms 51. David was obviously talking to the Lord about the Lord forgiving him and bringing him back into fellowship with himself. He says to God, create in me a pure heart, O God, and make my spirit right again. It's not right, but it can be. I, I want you to help me, Lord. He said, do not send me away. From you or take your Holy Spirit away from me. We're in the Old Testament time when God could remove his spirit. In verse 12 he said, give me back the joy of your salvation. Keep me strong, he said, by giving me a willing spirit. God, I'm a rebel. I need you to help me with a willing spirit here. Because he said then in verse 13, look, look at this, this is a key verse. He said, then God, after you give me that willing spirit. Then I will teach your ways to those who do wrong, and sinners will turn back to you. They'll be converted. 
Folks, it's imperative that you teach lost sinners what you know about God so that they can withdraw from Satan and return home to God. God's plan is to use the converted to convert others. And he gives you a heart that's converted to be able to do that. Likewise, it also means that your mind is being changed. He said, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things are become new. That is a process. It starts in the mind. Paul says in Romans 12, 2, don't copy the behaviors and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. There are two very important aspects of this statement. One involves your justification and the other involves your sanctification. Two big churchy words, but I'm going to throw them on you today. You'll figure them out. We're going to help you. Two good words that you need to understand. You see, the very moment that you put your faith and trust in Christ, you are justified. Justified. At that moment, God accepts you based on the righteousness of his son and, and you take on the righteousness that, of God so that he no longer rejects you but accepts you. And in that moment, he begins to treat you. This is beautiful. Just as if you had never, ever, ever sinned. He's not going to treat you like a sinner after you put faith in Christ. He's going to treat you as if you'd never done anything wrong. So positionally you're justified, you're made right with God, and it's a beautiful thing. In that same moment, God begins the process of sanctifying you by shaping you into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. He begins that transforming process that's going to continue throughout your life. Some of you are going, man, I don't like this thing that I'm going through right now. Well, it might be that God's putting you through that to shape you, to change you. And here's the really good news. God always finishes what he starts. Paul writes, and I'm sure that God who began a good work in you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus comes back again. Praise God. Praise God. This, this passage means our heart is converted. It also means our mind is being changed. But third, it means that your soul is being reconciled. Reconciled. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Now this word reconciled is the equivalent or it is synonymous with the Hebrew word converted. You and I need to understand if we're going to one day live with God, something has to change. We have to change. We all have to change. We all have to be reconciled. And our problem is that in our flesh today, we don't have the strength or the power to do what needs to be done to, to make the changes in us that need to be made. If we're going to be changed, if we're going to be reconciled, God has to be the one that does it. And I want you to notice how he does it. You can only be reconciled back to God through his son Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. The matter of reconciling your lost soul is the work of God. It was his idea from the beginning. It is his good plan. He knows how to do it. And he does it when we allow him.
Your heart is converted. Your mind is being changed. Your soul has been reconciled. And last of all, in this verse, Paul mentions the fact that your ministry is clearly defined. Now, the age-old question is, why do I exist? That's a philosophical question that's been being asked for thousands and thousands of years. Christians have been asking the question, why am I here? In other words, why did God leave me here after he saved me? Do you realize if God had the power to save you, he had the power to beam you up the minute he saved you? But why didn't he do that? History only records that there were two people that were caught up that never died. Enoch and Elijah, all the rest of us are going to die. All of us are going to live our life throughout this life on earth, and, and there's a reason for that. Why? Well, he says it's because he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We often overlook this. We often ignore this. But we shouldn't because five times, four times in the Gospels and one in the, the book of Acts, five times the New Testament makes clear what our number one task is. Acts 1.8, Jesus said, But when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will receive power and will tell people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Well, how does that apply to us? Well, we should be telling everybody right here in Isle of Wight County about the Lord. Also in our state and even across our nation and even to the ends of the world. That is what our task is. He even tells us how to do that. He says you need to go, you need to baptize, and you need to teach. Jesus clearly makes that clear to us in Matthew 28, verse 18. He says, I have been given complete authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you. And be sure of this. I like this part. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, I want you to notice the first of these commands has to do with going. Going. Interesting. If you take this literal and you understand the context of what Jesus is saying, he's saying you need to go because the lost world is not expected to come to you. <clears throat> Think about that. Years ago when we did our traffic survey, they said to us there were 9,000 people a day that drove in front of this building. There goes one right there. I don't know if you've driven around town lately, but I think that number's gone from 9 to about 15,000. And it's getting more and more. Folks, they're not turning in by the masses because God never expected them to. God expects us to go where they are to do whatever we need to do to reach them. They're not coming here. That old mantra that if you build it, they will come, that only happens in the movies. 
if these seats are ever going to be full, it's going to be because we go get them and bring them here. It's the truth. Tony Evans writes, The nations are not told to come to Christians for the gospel. We need to go to them. Said the church is not doing the work of the church if we're not winning souls to Christ. We must keep evangelism front and center in the life of the church. If the church is going to grow by making disciples, we have to have people, people who are willing to go into the whole world as Christ's witness, witnesses. People who are willing to go. <clears throat> that is one of the primary reasons that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to come live in us. To empower us to go. To help us focus on our task. He said, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses. My witnesses. Even to the remotest part of the earth. If we'll ever take that serious, and I say that, if we will ever be serious about that. My friends, we're going to leave far more than an inheritance. You know, I, I, I think about this often. Though I'm not ready for it to happen, someday I will hand the keys off to somebody else. The baton will one day be passed. I'm not ready for that to happen. But one day it's going to happen. I want to leave more than just a building. I want to leave a legacy. A spiritual legacy uh, of harvest being known as a church who is a great commission church who wins souls to Christ and not only wins them but disciples them so they in turn go out and win more to Christ. Why? Because the only treasure that you'll ever take into heaven is the precious soul that you work hard to persuade and lead to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. My question to you today is will you work at leaving a legacy Instead of just an inheritance. You know, <clears throat> Brother Bill announced last week that we're about to start faith again. We had more people involved in faith last semester than we've had in a long time. I honestly believe that we ought to have more than we had last time. Amen, Bill? Amen. Faith is a, a strategy where we train you of how, how to share your faith in Jesus Christ with someone you know, someone maybe you don't know very well. We teach you how to be able to talk to people about Jesus. That's a good thing. Because you never know when you've got a friend or a loved one or your boss, somebody you meet in an elevator, somebody you sit down across from in a restaurant, or somebody you meet in a hospital. You never know when you're going to encounter somebody that needs to know Jesus. And you need to know what to be able to say to them. Listen, friends, our leadership of our church needs to know how to do that. Our Sunday school teachers need to know how to do that. You need to know how to do that. 
If every Christian would just win one person to Christ, we'd turn this world upside down. Amen? Amen. So here's what I'm giving you an opportunity to do today. I think there's a sign-up sheet outside. We may have to put two or three more out there with it today. We got them, Bill said. If, if you run out of space on the front, turn it over and write your name on the back. We'd love to have you involved in faith. I, I just love to have you equipped to be able to share Christ whenever God gives you the opportunity. You never know. I remember years ago, there was a lady that went through our, our strategy, our faith strategy. And she said this. She said, I just want to be able to talk to my daddy about Jesus. And I said, well, that's a very worthy goal. And she was so serious about it that at, at week two, she'd already learned what you would normally accumulate it in nine weeks. Her father was in the hospital. She went and she shared Christ with her father. Week two. And in two weeks, her father died. But he died saved. What would have happened had she not committed herself to learning how to share faith. You tell me. I don't know. Who do you know needs to be saved? Who do you know that you need to pray for? Will you prepare to leave a legacy? Let's pray. Father, I know this message challenges us to the very bone marrow that we have inside of us to, to the very inner core because we, we have fear and trembling when we think about talking to other people about Jesus. I understand that. I, I have those same butterflies every time. Lord, others do as well. But there's no precious, no more precious or greater gift than to tell somebody about Jesus and help them come to put their trust and faith in your son. Help us to be able to do that, Lord. Help us to pray. Help us to pray that, God, you would prepare us. And as you prepare us, you would give us opportunity. And, God, then we would see the fruit of the labor. Lord, we're here. You planted us in a very strategic place in this community. What an awesome privilege we have, but... What a fearful responsibility we have as well. Lord, every person we put our eyes on, every person needs to know Jesus. Please break our hearts for that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to stand. If God leads you to come and get on your knees before God and pray, He leads you to put your name on that faith semester list outside you come do what God puts on your heart to do don't be afraid God always gives you the ability of what he calls you to do you just need willing hearts able bodies you come as God leads is a living sacrifice me all I do Bring praises unto you in light of your unending.
Harvest family. I've got some announcements for you, but beforehand, happy Grandparents Day to all of our wonderful grandparents. If you're a grandparent, stand up. Come on. Oh, 
we have no grandparents. Very, where's my dad? Oh, he's standing, I was making sure. Good, and we have up here, we got a few. One, none, uh-huh. Dogs do not count. No, they do not. Happy Grandparents Day. Um, gentlemen, you have a new men's Bible study that is starting. It started last Wednesday, and they had a good turnout. They had 14 show up with the impeding, that's not the right word, and not impeding bad weather, but impotent. Impotent bad weather. I don't think that's it. Impending bad weather. Um, anyways, Ben made me laugh. Uh, impending bad weather. We had 14 show up on Wednesday, and they even had one show up on Thursday. That is good. It was so good. He'd come back the next day. Uh, but anyway, they, he wanted me to let you know, um, Mr. Wayne, that uh, even though they had one already, they're going to have more come, so they, he wants you to come on out and join them. Um, it is uh, Wednesday evening, 7 o'clock, back in the Children's Theater. If you have any questions, um, see Mr. Wayne. Now, Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace begins this week, Thursday at 6 o'clock. They're going to meet over in the Youth Center, so if you've never taken Dave, it is awesome. So be sure. Um, uh, um, Sam is here. Sam, wave. There, Sam. Sergeant Sam, I gave you a 